Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is founding general partner of Mighty Capital, Jennifer Vassini. Jennifer has been investing for 10 plus years. Before becoming a full-time investor, she held executive roles in corporate and strategic business development, specifically in the high-growth security and mobile sectors with companies such as Telefonica, Symbian, Nokia, and Certicom, which, helped, which she helped take public in Canada. Jennifer serves on private and nonprofit boards and is currently the vice chair of a Dean's Advisory Council at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where she completed her MBA. Jennifer, welcome to the Second Clan podcast. Yeah, thank you, Cameron. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here and looking forward to, to the discussion today. Yeah, this is going to be really interesting. And you're the second person from a VC firm that I've had on the podcast. And I think we've done almost 200 episodes now. And the only one other one that I can remember having is um, from Backstage Capital, a group oh, out of okay. the US that they only invest in um, women-owned businesses and pr- pr- predominantly, I think, minority-owned businesses as well. But tell us a little yeah. bit about, about your firm and, and um, what your role is in the firm as well and kind of how you fit, because um, people maybe aren't really sure how, how VC firms act. Yeah, I'm happy to lay that out. It is a little bit different with some similarities. Um, I'm one of the original founders of Mighty Capital. We have three general partners and venture capital firms are a partnership structure. Um, but I was with it from day one. And uh, one of our managing partner, Asima Wadi, came to me with an opportunity. We had been co-investing together, um, SC and our other third partner, Alan Kramer. Um, and we all had a lot of opportunities, but she had actively grown this huge network of product managers called Products Account and always thought, there's an opportunity to invest in these companies. Let's try it out. Let's build a fund and and do it that way and invest that way. So um, she laid out a really great vision for something that would be differentiating, um, which was really key to me, um, to get great deal flow and to help portfolio companies move along towards a profitable exit. Um, So Mighty Capital was founded in 2017 to test that thesis with our first fund. Um, And we found it was very successful and went on to raise our second fund, which we closed last year. Um, We'll start raising our third fund this year. Um, And we focus really on early growth stage companies. So a lot of series A, some series B, about 70% of it would be B2B tech, software plays, companies like Amplitude. Uh, We've invested in DigitalOcean, CERN. Um, and about 30% in um, high growth opportunity, more regulated spaces where, where data is super important. So healthcare with an AI focus or personalized medicine, fintech and blockchain, which has a unique set of you know, facets at this moment in time. Um, so we invested those stages and we, when we make an investment, we really look at how we can add value by leveraging this huge network of some 300,000 product managers to help our companies sell to those enterprises, you know, with PMs, um, hire people, meet partners that can lead to acquisition. Um, And that we've definitely found over the last five years, the journey of product just continues to accelerate in terms of its access to the C-suite with chief product officers now 
um, growing into these strategy roles, just as the CMO did 10, 15 years ago. So it was a bit of a mouthful about, you know, Mighty Capital and where we're focused. Um, Amazing. Yeah. I need to ask about this whole 300,000 product managers. I mean, that was really the first data point that came out. So is it just like a a LinkedIn group? Is it an actual organization or an association? Is it a paid membership? Is it? Yeah, it's a not-for-profit. I love that you compared it to LinkedIn because every venture capitalist will say, I have a fantastic network. Okay, yes, we all have our LinkedIn Rolodex. Right. (laughs) But we wanted to go beyond that. This is really a living organic ecosystem of of companies and product managers. And it started out as a place for them to go and learn how to improve their craft. Um, Product management is a really tough, really critical role, especially Mm -hmm. as we're in this age of product now and things change so quickly. The best products are winning by and large. you know, Zoom is always a case in point. Uh, they wanted a critical time when <laughs> some mega players had really not broken that inflection point, right, for video communications. Mm-hmm, totally. uh, yeah, so it's a, a very active organization, not-for-profit, and Mighty Capital is the exclusive venture capital sponsor. So we're sponsor of the organization, and we work very closely with that team, even though they're two separate organizations, to be yeah, able no to... Kidding leverage that benefit, right, for our portfolio companies. And and early on, we found, yes, it's a great source of deal flow. And we're increasing that as we sponsor product awards and CPO mastermind circles and other fantastic programs that they put on. We're also finding on the incoming side, we're winning deals in the last year, about 80% of the deals we've been in have been upgraded um, or maybe deal terms have been extended in a closed round, for example, because the CEO wanted to leverage that value. That's incredible. I mean, just even like if it was $100 a year, that's a $30 million company just in and of itself as the product management business. Like it's it's huge. And uh, yeah, Amplitude, which went public last year, said uh, we were the best value per dollar invested in their company. And they made so room for us alongside you know, Bessemer and others on their cap tables. And so what is that product management group called? Products that count. Interesting. Love it. Yeah. All right. I definitely so, recommend any, any growing product managers, check it out. Um, there certainly are a number of executive, you know, VPs and CPOs in that network as well. We're starting to leverage it more and more to train their teams because that's a big job of product, man- you know, VP of product management has to actually mentor and teach people how to do good product management because it's not taught in school yet. Um, It's interesting. Yeah. My two core focuses, I'm growing something called the COO Alliance, which is really the only network of its kind in the world for second in commands. And then I also uh just launched a course called invest in your leaders and just taking a look at something like products account, that would be a natural fit for me to actually speak with them. So let's go back into the, the VC world. What was it that attracted you into this space and I guess starting mighty capital? Yeah, I've always loved investing. You know, my profile says 10 years. And I think back though, when I was in high school, I marched myself down to Dean Witter and opened a stock account. If anyone remembers Dean Witter, which I think is now Morgan Stanley, part of Morgan yeah. Stanley. Mine was mine was Richardson Greenshields. Okay. <laughs> 16 <laughs> there you years go. old. Yeah, I was uh, well, I was probably about 20 in San Antonio, Texas, went down, found a broker. He helped me open an account. He was really gracious, knowing I was never going to make him a ton of money um, and started buying stocks, you know, pre-internet. 
you know, we got the Wall Street Journal, but I've always been mm -hmm. interested in investing. My first degree was in finance. Um, and I ended up spending 20 plus years in operator roles in the technology industry, in the high growth security industry, then the high growth mobile industry, um, really culminating in a, a strategic business development, corporate development executive roles, which is very similar to investing. Um, so when I decided you know, to focus on it full time, it was because I'd been doing some angel investing, but going back to my background, my fundamentals, I know that's a really, you know, if you actually want to make money at it, which I did, you got to build a diversified portfolio. You got to invest the time in it. Um, so I just love that. And I love working with startups. I've always worked in startups or the kind of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial side of a large corporation sure. trying to transform, right? Um, so just love working with the teams and seeing the growth. I love the technology. I have always, I mean, I worked in cryptography before that even meant money. And it was you know, super challenging technically for me. I'm not a cryptographer. Um, and then I built a, a mobile networking product. So, you know, not an engineer, even though I studied it a bit. So I just really love the innovation, um, the growth. And then, of course, you know, the opportunity to make money and, and diversify my own family's net worth out of public markets, real estate, other things. Super cool. Um, and it, yeah. So it's a, definitely a profession that, that one develops when you go into the venture capital world. When, when you're looking for, it's interesting, like when I think about the VC world, you don't have to look for companies to invest in. You're spending 99% of your time saying no to 99% of the deals that want you to invest, right? Is, is the sales and marketing on a, a VC firm or in, in your group is finding capital, isn't it? That's where you spend, if you're selling, you're looking for capital. We do two things that yeah, we do both. We're fundraising kind of always, you know, LP relationships. Um, and when you're an emerging fund, those first couple of funds, people really have to put their trust in you and get the vision. Mm -hmm. Then you have a, a performance track record and we've got a great performance track record. So when we go to raise the next fund, we've got that to lean on. Uh, but, you know, concurrently, that performance only comes from the quality of your investments. Um, so yeah, we look at 4,000 things a year. We've put standard operating procedures in place for how we do that. So we can manage that pipeline from that to screenings, to deep meetings, to due diligence, to the investment. <laughs> and then the ongoing management of those portfolio companies. We do get a lot of incoming you know, deal opportunities, but uh, we've increased over the years our outbound efforts where we look at, you know, an investment thesis for a particular space, hmm. say cybersecurity. It's an easy one to yeah. wrap our heads around. Sure. Market map it, look at, you know, companies coming up that should be raising a series A, series B, leverage our networks to reach out to them. And okay. So that it, it, you know, A, increases the hit rate from, one percent yeah. and b it's within the framework of this is an appealing market that fits for mighty capital's thesis um and we can see potential great outcomes so is that more the series and is that more the series b rounds that you're going out prospecting for or are you looking for that after angel investing going for a series a yeah we're about 70 percent series a and then okay. a little bit before and a little bit after um because of that value add we discussed with products account even early on, we were able to write that smaller check in the later round because normally new funds, smaller funds are relegated to precede and seed. Um, 
But we really like that risk return profile, being able to get into slightly later early growth rounds where yeah. there's already product market fit, customer traction. It's interesting. Uh, I've, I've been the right direction. Yeah. I've been been coaching companies now for 15 years since leaving 1-800 God Junk. I've coached, you know, the CEO of Sprint was a client. I coached the second in command okay. at Sprint. So I've coached at very high level. I coached the team at Hootsuite for a bit. I I've worked oh, yeah. with lots of tech companies, but um I get called by these companies that are so early stage and and it's just it's not the right zone for me. So that makes sense. You're looking for ones that already have product market fit and then are looking to really grow. And that's where you're looking to get in, or you. Yeah, that's where that's where we are able to get in. Our earliest bet was on um, the blockchain company, a company called Icon, which actually is a developer store. It's developer tools for companies wanting to add blockchain into their products. Mm -hmm. Um, So probably our riskiest, but it also may be the highest earner at the end of the day. And we wanted to learn about that market. so yeah, that, that's where we fall. And we, we would always look at the same things no matter what stage a company's at, the team, and why are they uniquely qualified to solve a big and hard problem? So there better be a big and hard problem in a big market. Yeah. Um, then the business, you know, the traction, um, the business model, the go-to-market, how are they really getting leverage? What are the margins? Um, what's their funding history and funding plan? You know, do they have what's a fair amount of capital for them to raise to get to certain metrics. And then what does the exit opportunity look like? Um, Is it an acquisitive space? What are the comps? Does it have to be an IPO? Um, And then that that last thing I mentioned, the fit with Mighty Capital. And, you know, why us cap table, right? That's interesting that you talk about the, 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 does it, I need to write that down too. Um, the, The whole, does it need to IPO or not? So, that's intriguing because you're right. Like for, you can get a huge return pre-IPO in an acquisition we, we or just an organic. Three IPOs in the last year, and it's been fantastic, right? Yeah. So, um, but just understanding what does the founder expect the outcome to look like, and if they start from the end and work backwards, do they have a strategy to get there, and does that make sense? And honestly, most of the companies we meet with, even very early. We'll say this is an IPO opportunity. Well, statistically, it's impossible. <laughs> and right. it's become more and more difficult. Sometimes that's their ambition. Sometimes they think that's what the VCs want to hear. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, to me, I don't care if they do an IPO or have a fantastic MA, as long as they understand what the path is to an exit in terms of what they need to achieve to get there. Um, is it a flag at all? in a good way or a bad way when the founder is already so focused on an exit or do you need one that is focusing on, on that? No, it it really depends on the stage of the company. Um, We just want to hear their thinking behind it and to understand that they understand as investors, and this Mm -hmm. is what everybody should know before they pitch a venture capitalist. We want to know how we're going to make money for our investors and you know, so uh, occasionally we will have somebody come in who says, I might not ever want to exit this business. <laughs> and they're really just building a great lifestyle company, as we would call it, which means it's, you know, yours and your families, and you just keep growing and, and you're not really thinking about how you're going to return capital to right. your investors. Yeah. Especially you mentioned the blockchain. We had the, um, the second in command for blockchain.com on the second in command podcast. He's episode 182. I just had to do a quick search to figure out which episode he was, but 
Um, fascinating business model for them too. So when you're, you talked about looking for investments that fit um, Mighty Capital, what's that mean? What does the fit mean? Is it a culture thing? Is it an aptitude? Is it a speed? Is it, is it, is it the types of businesses? Is it everything? Yeah, it's many things. I mean, we, we have what we call a, you know, our contrarian thesis and, and every VC should have a contrarian thesis because that's where you find the opportunity is that the best products win and we're in the age of product. Um, so fit with Mighty Capital is how, how can we bring value to this company? You know, first and foremost, leveraging the, the product's account network. Um, like, is that company selling directly to product managers? Well, that's, you know, when we rank it one out of five, that would be a five out of five if like Amplitude sells directly to product managers. <laughs> or are they leveraging, do they need to make the product manager their champion to get that enterprise sale? Um, it could even be outside of that. And we have deep expertise in different areas across our GPs and our venture partners, right? So how else can we help this company? Some of it is culture fit. Uh, we believe very much in conscious leadership, growth mindsets, um, you know, coachability. Uh, yeah, and are we aligned in our thinking about an exit? Not, not that we can crystal ball it all the time, but... Um, you know, as it's when we build a portfolio construction, we needed a mix of investments for that diversification. And, and for where we're at, where we sit in the market, we don't want to go for those decacorns every single time. Right. Um, how does and, it fit with them in the portfolio, which the entrepreneur doesn't always know. That's not their decision. That's ours. Right. Yeah. Does, with your investment thesis and I guess with the fact that you're based in, in Canada, do you I'm invest not, only? Not, I'm in the Silicon. Uh, sorry, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. I know oh, we were speaking Bay. about my Canadian experience before before we got on oh, this. Okay. I'm actually in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> okay, I was because I, the question was actually related to twofold. One was, do you only then invest in Canadian companies, which would then be a no. The second one was, had you heard of the C100? Are you familiar with the C100? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and so actually, um, I, you know, I have. Before Mighty Capital, um, Family Office Fund has invested in Canadian companies. I've had some great success with that. Um, our current fund can only invest in U.S. companies, but as we scope out our next fund, we've got our eye to Canada, partly because we do have some proprietary deal flow with my experiences there, connected sure. to C100 and UBC and the Creative Destruction Lab you might be familiar right. with across Canada. Um, and Toronto is yeah, fantastic hub for AI and machine learning. And BC has that as well as life sciences and um, anything climate related. Uh, Alberta, also quite strong, you know, growing in, in its strength and Quebec. Yeah, I, so there's definitely a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Oh, Canada has become, I mean, they call it the PayPal mafia, right? So the, um, right. the, the whole group coming out of Canada. Yeah, I, I worked with, uh, I coached the founder of Influitive and Eloqua for, for about two years as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, strong, strong business. So, and the C100, yeah, I got introduced to them about 10 years ago. I spoke at a couple of conferences that they had called MetaBridge up in, in Kelowna. And I, mm -hmm. I learned that there were more VCs in the Bay Area from Canada than there were VCs in Canada. That can't be true anymore, is it? I can't speak to that. It might be. Um... <laughs> There's definitely, it's growing in Canada. The funds are still buying, you know, larger down here. I think having, you know, one of the things I, we look at, 
Really closely is the investor syndicate. So we like to see sometimes a VC from the East Coast, a VC from the West Coast, the strategic. I think, you know, Canadian VCs often look at that as well. And how can their portfolio companies tap into always tap into the US market or the European market mm-hmm. um, to, to leverage growth, right? Yeah. I, I don't think it can be true anymore. I just think that the Canadian scene has gotten so strong now with some of the brands getting so big, right? Like we've got the yeah. Shopify's and the Hootsuite's yeah, and the EA's and there's been enough money now that's starting to to kind of circ- circle in that group. So it's flywheel cool effect. Yeah, yeah exactly. that was the term I was looking for, flywheel, Jim Collins. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if we're to, um, to look at the team that you're building inside of Mighty Capital, how many people work inside of the VC firm? Yeah, that's that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, starting from the ground up, building a VC firm is like building a startup. Okay, yeah. and it's not about let's get together and raise a fund and go spend it. Although you know, there is some of that out there, it's how do we build a, a firm <laughs> with legacy and lasting, right? Um, you know, the lasting ability to to keep going. Um, so scaling up the team has been important from day one. We have. Uh, three general partners, although one of them is moving into an emeritus status, will con- continue to be with us. Um, Alan, who was, uh, founded Bridge Bank, was one of the first board members of Silicon Valley Bank. We have, at any given time, six to 10 venture partners, including three of whom are actively on our board bench at the moment. Um, we have a couple of associates, uh, one principal, a senior associate, are going to be hiring another senior associate. So that team is always growing. Um, and then we have, I guess you could call them affiliates, a CFO we've brought on recently who's starting like this week. Um, nice. And we've, you know, really mix up the back office with best of breed externally with internal management of that. Um, one of the ways we, we build and manage this is we're big on standard operating procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you move through the pipeline? How do you do an investment thesis? How do you do a due diligence um, so that we can train people very quickly, make sure we're consistent that um, if myself or a managing partner, a CMOADI gets hit by a bus, somebody knows what to do (laughs) and there's no single point of failure. Um, We're also really mindful about creating career paths um, for our team members expecting to expand the GP bench one day um, as they learn how to become great investors by working with us in the portfolio companies, those opportunities will be available. Um, So it's been a constant growth and, and, you know, trying to do it in a way that's efficient um, because we're stewards of our LPs money. And when they pay us, you know, fees, we want to use them very judiciously um, so that we continue to have great performance metrics. Is that one of the harder parts of starting a VC firm is starting a company? It's something people didn't expect, right? But yes, it's a lot of work and it's operational and it's not the fun work. It's not the glamorous work. And uh, I've certainly had friends who have gone off and started a fund and then they're like, oh, geez, you know, just like any entrepreneur starts their business. They're like, oh, I got to find an office and get a photocopier and bring in Trinet or some payroll provider and file a bunch of paperwork. And yeah, I'm, I'm hiring lot. my first person over in the Philippines right now. And they started talking about all the different comp and the p- payroll tax and stuff. I'm like, yep. can I just pay you over there to deal with that for me? I don't want to have to learn this. They're like, yeah, okay, good. Take it. Yeah. It's, that, right. it's interesting. Cause it's like, it's like a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer who decides to go off and start a firm and 
it's like a lawyer lawyer's office and accounting office very yeah. similar yeah, you still have, have a, to have uh, your foundations to actually run a business. Yeah, know? a close friend of mine started a company in Toronto called Will de Apps, and he um, he got his LLB from I think Notre Dame and his MBA from Ottawa U, and he, he didn't want to go work for a law firm; he just wanted to start one. So he got like three of his buddies together, and they started, but they led the, the public offering for RIM. I'm like, how oh, they right. stumbled? Yeah, how they stumbled onto that twenty odd years ago, thirty years ago, um, was crazy, but. What's changing in the VC world? What's changing in the VC yeah. world? Um, it's always is a it, dynamic world. Is it? Um, you know, as much as it changes, it also stays the same. I mean, investing is for the long run. So we believe very much in sticking to the fundamentals. We're valuation mm-hmm. sensitive or at least reasonable, for example. Okay. Um, we look for companies that are capital efficient, cost efficient. Um, so that there's always that like invest for the long run. You can't always predict the waves when things are going to go up and down. So invest in good businesses, good products, good teams, good markets that should stay the same. Um, we've definitely seen in the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, just the mega fund aspect. And so there's a fragmentation, which I think is healthy in the industry, different types of VC firms, different types of startups. Um, the mega funds have their own dynamic pile on lots of cash. They have to invest a lot of money, have to return a lot um, to the LPs, tend to have a high number of failures and some great successes. Um, and that, that model works for them. We're more on the um, try to make everything, you know, everything a star. Um, so we have like opposite really? metrics, maybe three challenged portfolio companies out of now, we keep making investments 20 something um, portfolio companies. We've had a number of stars and a number of rising stars. We don't believe you have to have a huge degree of failure, um, but we're also not writing $100 million checks. So it's a very different thing. So I think there are different kinds of VC firms that fit for different kinds of companies investing, that fit for different kinds of LPs and what they're looking for when they diversify um, their finances, so a lot of good fragmentation to meet different needs. Um, we've definitely seen in the last few years the big emphasis on um, ESG and diversity and inclusion. Um, I, I think that's true. Um, and a lot of that, we mentioned flywheel effect. I think a lot of that has to do with time and flywheel. Mm-hmm. We're seeing so many more diverse teams come in to present, and some of it is demographic and age, to be honest. So yeah, yeah. People are entering their 30s and 40s. It's a lot more diverse than it was 10 years ago. People entering their 30s and 40s that want to go start a company and and have that kick at the can, right? So you have that impact. And then you have the second time around CEO impact. It's so much easier to get funded if you have a successful exit in your background. So as as more underrepresented people, you know, have successful exits. Um, yeah, we're seeing the tech, the tech firms, space is kind of 25 years old now. So we've got a bit of that right? history for a lot of them, right? Yeah. NBC firms have definitely gotten more diverse. We have two out of three of our GPs are women. A lot of our v, um, venture partners are, you know, very much diverse and mixed. And we, we actually have to explain to people, no, we're not an impact fund. We're about making right. money first and foremost. Right. <laughs> Well, it's like kind of like it's kind of like Justin Trudeau. They asked Justin Trudeau, "Why is half your cabinet women?" And he said, "Well, it's 2017. Like, I don't <laughs> even understand the question, right? Like, so yeah, right. you don't you don't do it for impact. It's just 
because it's called fucking normal. Um, I don't understand why it wouldn't be. So you said just something, it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you said something that really just hit me as a, as because a, I was about to ask the question: Was your model the typical one? What is it? One two seven? The one home runs and two do okay and seven fail, or whether it's I don't know what's one seven two, whatever the hell it is. I hate the model. Um, but you said that everyone, like you really focus on all of your companies being a star, all the investors. So what does mighty capital do to support them and help them and grow them to, and I'm not even going to lead you with the questions. What do you do to help them be successful? Cause I think you should yeah, to help them help themselves. Right. Cause they're the ones running their companies, but um, a number of things. So after we make an investment uh, within weeks, we sit down with them and have a meeting to say, okay, what are your objectives over the next six months, 12 months? Um, What do you need? Like what kind of introductions to who? Are you hiring? Do you need to finish this investment round? So we actually come up with concrete action items right off the bat. Um, We usually schedule them to do a podcast at products account within the first month or two. Um, We invite them to our monthly LP dinners, which are Zoom events now, right? But um, to talk to our LPs about what they're doing. And that's been very successful for some of them to um, form a new partnership with somebody that one of our LPs may have. Um, one of our companies just signed Neiman Marcus as a customer after an LP dinner. Um, somebody had a, a great contact there. Um, so very concrete things to help them out. We take board seats or board observer seats, whatever is appropriate on a large number of our deals. Um, and that's They want us there so that we can hear on a regular basis uh, what their needs are, what their challenges are, what the opportunities are. Um, We help them with their next fundraise, like preparing for that. Like, what should it be? How much? um, What form of raise, like a bridge or a priced round? What's your ideal syndicate look like? Um, Come and pitch us and we'll give you feedback. Um, so those are some examples of what we do to help them. But, you know, we've, we've definitely mapped, we've correlated their engagement level with the products account network. And there's what looks like, you know, we expect to be their success trajectory. So it's been yeah. very strong. But I love that you started with some of the operational things and, and plans and getting fairly tactical with even with some of it, because I think a lot of VC firms tend to migrate very quickly to helping them with the next round or financial issues or tech issues, but they forget about like, these are businesses that don't know how to hire people yet. They don't know how to build a team yet, or maybe they have a team of 20, 30 people, but it's not the right team. They don't know how to build a leadership team. They don't know how to grow. They like, they don't understand how to run meetings. It's like, they don't, they don't really know how to run a company yet. Right. Um, yeah. Sometimes we have to tell them how you run. Now, most of them are kind of past those learning phases, but you know, a board meeting should include like set your board calendar for the year, set the agenda, think about having your council there, get the slides out early, cover these well, things. You know, <laughs> governance yeah, I, I was, is really I was strict. Coaching, I was coaching the CEO of Sprint and the second in command of Sprint for 18 months. And I was sitting with Marcelo Claret in his boardroom at Sprint and he was asking for advice on operational things. I'm like, I've never run a telco. I've never been inside of it. He goes, no, but you're going to run companies. These are businesses that you're investing in that if I think that's why you're getting success is because you are focusing on that stuff. I think so many VC firms could have much, much greater folks or greater um, results if they actually help them build those foundations. I think it's I think you're doing great stuff there. 
And we do have to prioritize it. We can't white glove service absolutely everybody all the time. And so we do quarterly reviews of the portfolio, kind of, you know, rank them on, you know, how's their cash, how's their leadership, how's the execution. Um, And we look at, you know, what their long run potential is going to be. And sometimes we do have to prioritize, got to focus on the winners and sort of be there for the, you know, the more challenged ones to help where we can, but we can't. It's so easy to like put yeah. all the burden of the struggling ones on your shoulders and like dive into that, but you can't do that, right? No, I, I learned that back at a company called College Pro Painters, which is where I first started out in business oh, yeah. 35 years ago from Greg Clark, the founder. And he said, you give yeah. your brain to your best horses. And when, you're, right. when you're, you know, your A players are racehorses, your B players are workhorses, the C players should go to the glue factory. And we end up giving all of our time to the C players and we miss out on the A players. So yeah, you're doing yeah, that right so- too. You got to portion out the right amount of resources, mm-hmm. um, you know, and even though the challenge ones will do whatever we can to recover or get something back for the investment. We don't totally ignore them, of course, but, um, but that, you know, that's the shifting that has to happen as you grow. So you mentioned the board observer seat. Can you explain what that role is? Cause I don't think a lot of people have heard of that. They'll hear board of advisors, board of directors, board seats, mm-hmm. but they, I don't know if they hear that term board, board of observer. Yeah, good point. And I'd say most companies have them now. Um, so it's not a voting liable boards, you know, full board seat. It's um, something we negotiate in maybe half of our deals as part of the terms that we want a board observer seat. So that means we attend the board meetings, we get the board materials, we get the information rights. Um, it really is what it sounds like. It's to observe. Um, I would say, you know, by and large, we're treated as openly as a board member in terms of the information flow. Not in, you know, in some cases we'll be asked to leave the room or whatever, but for the most part, we're treated that way, but we don't necessarily have the governance, mm-hmm. um, legal governance obligation. But by being there and, you know, getting the updates, we're able to help, right? That's what I was wondering is then do you do the kind of the skip level meeting? You kind of skip over the board and you give them advice of what you've seen. Is that part of, or they can come to you with questions? Yeah. Yeah. On a situation, I often have one-on-one with the CEO or with other board members um, to talk about, well, how are we going to manage this next fundraise or, you know, this issue. Um, So building rapport with the other board members, which is really the other investors for the most part and whoever's independent um, is part of the job of being the observer. Now, without without giving away your entire hiring criteria f- f- to, to work at Mighty Capital, if somebody wants to go work for a VC firm or, or for you guys, what does your firm look for in terms of less on the skill side, because I think that's probably already a given, but maybe on the behavioral traits, what do you yeah, look for? definitely. Grit. <laughs> Grit is really important. Um, adaptability growth mindset, hustle, um, good interpersonal skills, of course, um, the ability to understand where an entrepreneur is coming from, yet think like the investor, what we need you know, as an investor, um, what's important to us. Uh, so definitely those, those sorts of criteria, they're not easy jobs, you know, for entry level, it's, it's similar to 20 years ago when everyone wanted to go work for Goldman Sachs right. <laughs> on wall street. Um, 
a lot of fantastic candidates for very few slots that want to get in on the inside. This is, you know, the younger people sort of more entry level. Um, Has that become, yeah. Is this kind of the new investment banker track? Like, because that was what it was when I was growing up in university in the mid eighties, everyone wanted to go work on wall street, be an investment banker. It, It does seem like now people would rather work for a VC firm and they don't want to go work for the big banks. Yeah, I agree. Or it's at least on par. Or yeah. if it's not one of those, they want to go be a CEO of a company right out of the gate. Right? Well, because we didn't we didn't really know what entrepreneur. Well, entrepreneurship was not cool until around 97 or 98, right? With the rise of the first dot-com era. I remember I had to do a call. Uh, Kimball Musk was one of my employees in 1993. So I was a reference for Elon and Kimball in their very first round of funding for Zip2. And they only wanted to raise $600,000. And they wouldn't back Elon because he'd never done anything. He dropped out of aeronautical engineering. So they wanted to back Kimball based on his college pro painters experience. And Kimball wanted me to call, he called it a merchant bank at the time. And I'm like, I don't know what, I don't know what a merchant bank is. And I think it was Kleiner. And I had a call with this guy and explained college pro painters. And I didn't understand what the internet was because it was only 95. But like, if anyone had said, do you want to work for a merchant bank or a venture capital firm? I'd be like, no, that sounds like a horrible job. And now it'd be like, fuck yeah, I want in. (laughs) Yeah, so we do see a lot of that. And, and people come from one of two directions. Either they've been an, an operator in the startup, usually tech world. Right. Um, so been on the operational side, having to build businesses or, you know, and functionally, maybe they were sales, maybe they were product, you know, whatever. Or they come from the investment world and they bring that set of skills, which is fantastic to have a, yeah. a mix of both. Right, the analytical spreadsheet skills um, yeah. are sometimes underutilized in some BC firms. Not not universally, but so many of people come from the operator side. You do need that analytical side as well. And and I know myself and my partners, we look for those complementary skills amongst ourselves and, and where to focus. You're definitely a quant. I mean, you can you can smell it right <laughs> you from the you're, you're definitely a quant. Um, I'm definitely more right. the analytical. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So last question I've got, or second last question I've got is just around your skill set, you know, as a second command and as, as growing this VC firm, where do you focus in terms of your growth? What are you working on? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So we've got, um, you know, at Simo Adi, the, the partner, she's the contrarian, you know, and more very creative person as well. Um, wickedly smart, um, you know, Stanford GSB, and she's teaching at Columbia and Stanford, various things, you know, (laughs) she's a superstar. Um, I'm definitely more analytical, Um, you know, so looking at the numbers, the contracts, um, I work a lot more with the portfolio companies and I'm involved in the deal screening. So early part of analysis, heavy undue diligence as well. Um, We make it a point to not have all partners on any one diligence, because you have to have a kind of a conscientious objector <laughs> to, you know, really ask the questions after wow. so you get attached to the people, you get attached to the vision and the idea and bias is yep. a huge challenge in group think, right? Yep. So, um, so we, we have those complementary abilities, but we make sure we all have to tie us together, conscious leadership as one of our commitments. Um, we love, you know, self, you know, books and coaches and that sort of thing. And, um, and it filters down to our venture partners, our associates. Um, We're talking about how 
modeling that for our portfolio companies and our CEOs who should have conscious leadership. Um, so culture within a VC firm is, is culture everywhere is everything. It's really super important. Um, but for us at our first LP meeting, we asked our LPs, what kind of culture do you want us to have at Mighty Capital? And how do you want to be involved in that? I was surprised how much they dove into that and how important it was to them as well to like understand why we're doing this, how we work with each other, um, having this growth mindset, um, challenging each other. Um, Super interesting. Yeah. So I I have a second last question that that I just had to to ask because we always talk about our home runs. What was the big, have you guys had any big misses that you just, you missed like the company's been a home run and you missed on the investment side? I, you know, I used to obsess with following companies we didn't invest in to see what happened to them. And I stopped spending a lot of extra time on that because I didn't, honestly, didn't find many. Um, Not yet. I told the founder of Uber in the summer of 2008, Garrett Camp, six months before he hired Travis, I told him it was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard. And of the five people sitting with him at Burning Man, only Tim put money in. The other four said no, and I was out. (laughs) shit regret yeah exactly oh i really don't i made one i'll I'll tell a funny story before even being a a venture investor i made one dumb bet on the stock market and this would have been 2009 or 10 or maybe even earlier i shorted apple (laughs) whoa well that was was like actually it might have been pre-iphone it was that yeah, long was, ago, and it was probably my bias, having worked for Symbian and Nokia and some of the oh arrogance. Yeah, Nokia, was, Nokia was huge back then. Yeah, they were number one. We had huge market share in smartphones, hundred, hundreds of millions of devices. Nokia was one of the owners of Symbian, who I worked for, building an open OS. Um, so it's definitely a case of the early guys who paved the way got creamed, and, yeah. and we knew that was coming. You know, we were yelling over the pond, don't ignore the Americans. My my dad has always said this. Yeah, it's so hard to build a smartphone, um, but that's what happens with innovation. Like you can be a success today, doesn't mean you will be tomorrow. Got to keep the product. The best product wins, right? We we saw it. Well, we've and we've heard the story that the early bird gets the worm, but my dad always said the early cat gets the bird. (laughs) Sometimes you want to be second or third. All right, let's go back to the 22-year-old Jennifer. What advice would you give yourself? You're just graduating college. You're heading out on your career. What do you wish you'd known back then that you know to be true today? Oh, my goodness. You know, the dynamics were quite a bit different then. Mm -hmm. Um, A 22-year-old, so. I think early on, I'm, I'm past this now, but... It would have been like, ask for more sooner. Um, more responsibility or more? More responsibility, more title. Um, I think things have changed. There was less fake it till you make it back then. Um, not that I advocate always doing that, but yeah. um, you know, I think my mindset then was I had to have, I had to already be operating at a certain level to then ask for the salary and the title, but right. no. And you yeah. have to balance that with, not seeming like crazy and arrogant and um, 
Yeah, that's changed because for sure, when, when I was growing up, that you just never would have marched into the CEO's office and asked, or you certainly wouldn't have asked for equity. <laughs> no way. No, you kind of waited for it to come to you. Um, but I think, like, don't wait. Be more of a self-starter. And, awesome. uh, and I don't know what else. I would have definitely said bet on tech early. Yeah. But the one stock I mentioned going to Dean Witter, I bought an oil stock. No, I should have bought tech stock. What was I thinking, right? I was in yeah. Texas at the time. So. Yeah. My, my dad would not let me buy Apple stock around 1987 or 88. And he made me put money into a mining company, a junior speculative mining company. I'm the same. Yeah. I, I would. Now I'm just, um, we'll, we'll wrap the interview. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate all the time. I want to ask you a quick question offline um, just about where we are, but Jennifer Vancini, the uh, founding general partner of Mighty Capital. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Cameron. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com. 